you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, join me in turning to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. John's Gospel, chapter number 20. I want to begin our Easter season focus on the resurrection with this morning's service. And I'm hopeful that by beginning these weeks ahead of Easter, you will uh, sense the leadership of the Spirit and be forced by virtue of our teaching to give more careful contemplation to the meaning of the resurrection for you personally. There is no event in human history that matters more than the resurrection of Jesus. Even at our efforts at emphasizing the cross, those various emphases are futile apart from the resurrection of Jesus. Many, many men have died on a Roman cross, but there is only one who was raised the third day in life that we might have life by faith in him. We're holding an event here this evening called Point Academy. We do these periodically. It's kind of an academic seminar type setting where we deal with various issues related to our understanding of the Bible. And this evening, our focus is the resurrection. I'm again looking at resurrection in a little different light with a little greater depth last Easter in preparation for our Easter services then and came to the conclusion that the message of the resurrection is far too distant from our hearts. In other words, our lives aren't shaped on a daily basis by the reality that Jesus is alive in the way it really ought to be. We give lip service to that. We affirm that. I don't find encounters with people who would seek to deny the resurrection, certainly not within our body. And frankly, it's not something that I run into quite often, even outside of the body of Christ. But far too often, we are failing to live with the spirit of invincibility and courage that God intends for us as a product of the resurrection. Jesus is alive which means he is lording over every detail of our life. Our lives, our every breath is in subject to the authority of the king of all kings. And in addition to that, his resurrection means our resurrection, which allays all of our fears for health and safety and persecution and emboldens us to declare with confidence that Jesus is the resurrected Savior. And though a terrible fate may befall us in the here and now, what awaits us in the resurrection will restore that and so much more. We have to get closer in our hearts and minds to the message of the resurrection than perhaps we've been in times past. And I'm convinced that as or when we do, God will do tremendous things in us, emboldening us and granting us great courage, come what may. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. If you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. The Bible says here, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. 
Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter came also. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first, then entered the tomb, saw and believed. For they still didn't understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went home again. But Mary stood outside facing the tomb crying. As she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting there, one at the head and one at the feet, where Jesus' body had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, though she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, sir, if you've removed him, tell me where you've put him and I will take him away. And Jesus said, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, which means teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, for I've not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them that I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. She told them what he'd said to her. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. John gives record of the words of chapter 20. I would note here that chapters 20 and 21 belong to a collective unit closing the gospel of John with three purposes. He writes with three intentions. First, John writes to record the events of the resurrection of Jesus. This is, again, the most significant event in human history. The salvation work of God hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. Apart from the resurrection, there is no salvation. The Apostle Paul would teach in 1 Corinthians 15 that if there is no resurrection, our faith is futile, our preaching is in vain, and we are the most pitiful of all people. Everything for us hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the most significant event in human history. And so John gives us an accounting for the events of the resurrection of Jesus, as do the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. His second purpose is to persuade. In other words, John doesn't give us a disaffectionate presentation of the events of the resurrection. He frames them such that unbelievers would be persuaded to believe on Jesus because of his resurrection. Not only to believe in Jesus, but to believe on Jesus because of the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus functions to verify everything about the earthly ministry of Jesus. If Jesus is alive, all of our objections, all of our perceived issues with the ministry or even the mere notion of Jesus are put to rest. As are all of our objections, regardless of the shape that they take. If Jesus is alive, he is Lord, and you as individuals are going to have to reckon with that reality. 
John writes not merely to give us a historical accounting. He's not writing a history book. He's writing with the intent to persuade you to entrust your soul to a risen Lord Jesus Christ. He says as much in verse 31 of chapter 20. He says, but these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. So John writes to provide a record of the resurrection and to persuade belief in the resurrection. But there's a third purpose here as well. John writes to teach. John gives us insight in chapters 20 and 21 of the various ways that people will tend to respond to the message of the resurrection. John uses this feature in the gospel of John called staging. I don't know that I would have known what to call this feature until recently, but that's the way it seems to be referred to in scholarly circles. What staging is about, what John is doing is, rather than providing all of the minute details of a certain episode, he allows that one person involved in the event stand as representative for many others. It makes for easier reading, and it makes for better communication of what John intends to express. For instance, in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and he says, We know that you've come from God because of the great power that we see in your ministry, but there remain some objections that I and some of the other Pharisees have toward your ministry. In a way, Nicodemus stands as representative of a part of the Pharisees, who would affirm the power of God in Jesus' ministry, but don't especially appreciate the way he is casting off the authority that has deeply established itself within the nation of Israel. And there are various other examples of this. Peter is often the figurehead or the representative speaking on behalf of the body of the disciples. It doesn't mean that the account is less historical. It just means it's less busy and easier for us to read and understand the intent as it's expressed in the message of the gospel. Now, there are three characters in the passage that we've just now read. And, and one of those characters happens to appear twice. Mary Magdalene, who appears twice, and Peter and John. And in each of their experiences with the realization that the tomb is empty, they're responding in different ways. And in some ways become representative of the various ways that people will tend to respond to the message of the resurrection. Now, this is not only true in the passage that we read. It's true later in chapter 20 where Thomas doubts and Jesus shows him the scars in his hands. And it's true even in chapter 21 as Peter is restored after his betrayal to the resurrected Jesus. So as we read along, I hope that you'll give consideration to where you fit on the spectrum of response to the message of resurrection. And I hope that ultimately you'll land with Mary Magdalene in her second encounter or experience here with joy and gladness at what God has done in the resurrection of his son. Look at verse one. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb, so she ran to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. 
Mary makes it only so close to the tomb that she can observe in the darkness that the stone has been rolled away. Now don't think small stone here. Don't think insignificant stone. Think substantial stone. This is a large stone, a stone large enough to co cover the mouth of this tomb, which is large enough that Peter and John and Mary can but stoop and walk inside the tomb. Now, if you know anything about stones, if you've ever put your hands on a stone, you know that it doesn't take a very large stone to be a very heavy stone. So the reality that this great rock has been removed from the mouth of the grave is an indication for Mary Magdalene that something is amiss. Matthew, Mark, and Luke account for the reality that an earthquake unfolds at the breaking of day, and by virtue of that earthquake, the stone itself is rolled away. That is how substantial the stone covering the mouth of that tomb would have been. Mary sees it in the dark. And given the way John in the Gospel of John plays with the imagery of darkness as representative of the, the powers of this world and light as the powers of God, one wonders if there isn't some intended symbolism in that Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb while it's still dark. It is that light is resurrected from the dark as Jesus is raised from the dead. She makes her observation and she immediately leaves. Rather than pressing forward to the tomb, she, in perhaps fear, at least reluctance, returns and reports to Peter and to John that something is indeed amiss. In fact, her report reads in verse number two, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. John uses in his accounting for the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus certain ironic twists. For instance, they put a placard above the cross of Jesus that said, the King of the Jews in Hebrew, in Greek, and in Latin. Now they put it there to mock him because this was the title that was assigned him by his disciples and indeed the title he embraced himself. But they had no idea whatsoever that they told the truth in their mockery of the King who, hood, who hung on the cross. There's an ironic twist. They speak the truth and they're altogether unaware of the reality that they themselves are speaking the truth. See these again and again. And I wonder if there's an, a bit of irony in what Mary Magdalene says here. They have taken away the body of our Lord and we don't know where they've put him. In spite of the many times that Jesus had instructed the disciples that he must die in their place and be raised again the third day. No less than three detailed, distinct accounts of Jesus warning the disciples that he would die and be raised from the dead on the third day. But like Mary's inability here to see Jesus for who he was until he spoke her name, those disciples seemed veiled from the reality of his death and resurrection. They had not only the ministry of Jesus, the teaching ministry of Jesus to inform them of his forthcoming death and resurrection, but the teaching of the Old Testament, and yet they did not have eyes to see, nor ears to hear, hearts to discern. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. Mary's response, at least in verses 1 and 2, seems to be confused, which is, in maybe a different way, with different reasons or different motivations the way many respond today to the message of the gospel. 
Now, most have not had the experiences, the benefits of experience that Mary Magdalene would have had for Jesus, nor do most have the kind of affection for Jesus that Mary Magdalene expresses throughout this passage and many others within the Gospels. But many are left with dazed and confused looks when encountered with the reality of the resurrection because of the radical ways it would seem to shape their life moving forward. The more deeply ensconced you become in lifestyles and conduct in behavior in a manner of life that is removed from the ways of God, the more radical the changes must take place in your life when encountering the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And some of you have experienced firsthand that to embrace the risen Jesus Christ makes an absolute mess of the mess that you've been working on for all your life. And everything now must change. From this day forward, everything must be different because Jesus is alive. Now, I'm not sure that Mary had that level of grasp on the situation at this point, but the confusion that she expresses here is not dissimilar to what I encounter with many people who have entrenched themselves in the ways of this world and wonder how in the world they can ever go back to the family and the friends who have known them this way and built a life around this lifestyle and declare to them that everything has changed because Jesus has risen from the dead. No doubt many respond to the message of resurrection with dazed <coughs> and somewhat confused looks. Thought I was going to choke there for a moment. The next two characters that appear in our narrative are Peter and John in just that order. The focus on Peter in verses 3 through 7 and then John in verses 8 through 10. Verse 3, the Bible says that that, Peter and the other disciple went out heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. And following him, Peter came also. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. Now, Peter's behavior here in these verses is perfectly consistent with his behavior elsewhere in the Gospels. John outpaces Peter to the grave, but reluctantly stands outside stooping to observe the interior of the tomb. But Peter comes a few steps behind and just busts right in. Peter's kind of rash, that's his character, that's his personality, and he makes his way headlong into the tomb, observing, as John had observed before, that the grave clothes of Jesus had been removed, folded neatly, and were lying on the bench, the tomb bench, where the body of Jesus had once lay, his head wrappings folded neatly and laying beside them. Now for Peter, the resurrection of Jesus represents hope. And we might suggest, we might draw from the passage that it's hope in the resurrection that compels Peter to press his way past John and into the interior of the tomb itself. Remember the last time Peter saw Jesus? It was across the courtyard where Jesus was being held under arrest. And as, G as Peter denied Jesus for the third time, he could look across the courtyard into the face of his Lord and his friend as he was carried away captive and ultimately to his 
crucifixion. If John's intent is not that we would understand Peter's forcing his way into the tomb here as driven by hope, it is most certainly that in chapter 21. When Peter dines with Jesus, Jesus in his resurrected body enjoys breakfast by the Sea of Galilee with none other than Peter the betrayer. You know when you have a bad experience with a person, how there can be a certain tenseness when you're finally around one another again. And you don't really know how to interact. You know, you had a way that you interacted, but then you did this thing you shouldn't have done. Or maybe they did this thing they shouldn't have done. And you just kind of, you do this kind of quiet, eerie dance until you figure out what's okay with them and they figure out what's okay with you. But no one really knows. And in our pridefulness, we don't have the courage to ask or to say anything about it. Can you imagine? You have betrayed Jesus. And now we're going to have a breakfast together. Jesus looks across the fire to Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord. Here's the eerie dance, right? And then Jesus asks a second time you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord. And then the third time, as though to draw especially close, Jesus says, Peter, do you really love me? Peter says, Lord, you know I do. You know I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. I have to imagine that that encounter with Jesus, his restoration in John 21, informed his understanding of what it means to be a shepherd as we studied in 1 Peter chapter 5 in last week's passage. Here it's a note for us, John 21, and this back and forth between Jesus and Peter is a reminder for us that the resurrection of Jesus meant hope for Peter. The resurrection of Jesus meant the promise of a second chance. The resurrection of Jesus meant the promise of a new creation, a new beginning, a clean slate, a second opportunity. The resurrection of Jesus meant for him an opportunity to do it better than he'd done it before. I'm telling you, there, there, there are more people walking in the footsteps of Peter in Western Christianity than what is realized. Now, th Think about this conflicting comparison. Peter, who would draw the sword and kill for Jesus within a matter of hours would deny him with his mouth and refuse to die for Jesus. And there are a lot more people out there popping off about how they'd kill for Jesus than there are willing to die for Jesus. And there's a great deal of difference between those two. Whereas God never called us to kill for Jesus, the message of the gospel is that we would die following in his footsteps. Peter's able to do the big, brash, bold, courageous thing in the minds of many. But he is altogether unwilling to do what God had clearly in the gospel invited him to do. But the resurrection would change all that. What Peter had so fouled up in times past, he now had opportunity because of the resurrection to make right. And brothers and sisters, I want that you would know this morning that the resurrection of Jesus Christ just as well means a second opportunity, a new creation, and a brand new beginning for you by faith in Jesus. Think of what he'd done. He had betrayed Jesus. 
You've done some dreadful things, I'm sure. But, but who has so overtly, so openly, in such, an, in such a brutal way, denied Christ? His, his betrayal would leave him isolated and alone. This is what Peter had done. And yet the resurrection of Jesus meant for him the full restoration. Peter would be a pivotal piece of what God would do in the birth of the church and the expansion of the kingdom in its formative years. The resurrection meant for Peter hope. If not in the verses of chapter 20, verses 3 through 7, most certainly within the unit of John 20 and 21. For Peter, the resurrection signaled the hope of a brand new beginning. John is mentioned in verse 8. You'll not see his name there, nor will you see it elsewhere in chapter 20. He is referred to somewhat anonymously as the other disciple, previously as the beloved disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is kind of a humble feature in the Gospels, whereas the authors of the Gospel don't mention themselves by name. They'll refer to themselves in kind of an obscure way. For instance, there's a passage in Mark where at the Garden of Gethsemane, there is said to be a young boy who runs away from the garden. And most believe that that young boy running out of the garden in fear is none other than Mark. Here, in what looks like humility, John refers to himself merely as the other disciple. And verse 8 says that he had reached the tomb first, then entered the tomb, saw, and believed. Now, if other disciple, as kind of this anonymous description of John, is supposed to be a statement in humility, and you're thinking deeply about this passage... You might note something less than humility in John making the special note here that it was he who first looked into the tomb and believed. But take special note that the Bible says here that John saw and believed. In the Gospel of John, this is not necessarily a praiseworthy thing. This is yet again humility on the part of John to offer us this insight into his own shortcomings with regards to faith in the resurrection. Think about the Gospel of John, what Jesus most often condemns in the multitudes that gather to hear him preach. You crooked and perverse generation, you are always seeking signs and wonders. You believe only when you see. For instance, the most notable miracle in the Gospel of John is the feeding of 5,000 on the plains of Galilee. And there for fish and bread, thousands of people, thousands of people gather to Jesus to hear him teach. But within a few short verses, when the fish and loaves run out, they all defect, they all leave. Only the disciples are left. Jesus turns even to those disciples and said, Aren't you going to leave too? And Peter, here again as the figurehead, the representative of the body of disciple, disciples, offers in a fit of brilliance some of the sweetest words that were ever uttered by the apostle Peter. Lord, where are we to go? Only you have the words of eternal life. Early in Jesus' ministry, as recorded in John chapter 2, he's in the city of Jerusalem, and many signs and wonders are performed by his power. And the Bible says that many believed when they saw the signs and wonders. But because Jesus knew what was in their heart, he did not entrust himself to them. 
They believed in this artificial or superficial kind of way. They sought to avail themselves of what Jesus could offer them with no interest in the person and worth of Jesus himself. And there are many today, listen, there are many today masquerading as Christians for what Jesus can offer them with no interest in his infinite worth for worship and praise. We don't follow Jesus because of what he stands to do for us, but because he and he alone has the words of eternal life. We have nowhere else to go. So when John says of himself here that he saw and believed, this is not a pat on his own back. In fact, it's a statement of his own frailty and weakness. Later in John chapter 20, there is this encounter with the 12 disciples, later the 12 apostles. I suppose they're apostles even at this point. But there's one within the group that doubts. Jesus draws near and shows Thomas the scars of his crucifixion. He believes and confesses in verse 28, my Lord and my God. But listen to what Jesus says in the next verse. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Those who believe me without seeing are blessed. Now, Thomas was blessed. John is blessed. They saw and they believed. But Jesus reserves the chief blessing. The most blessed of people, Jesus says, are those who believe in the absence of physical sight. The invitation of the resurrection, the power of John's persuasion here is to invite us with eyes of faith to see what cannot be seen in the present context. To heed the testimony of the disciples, to hear and to listen for the still small voice of God, to believe what we cannot see with our eyes, to entrust ourselves by eyes of faith to a resurrected Jesus Christ. John notes in verse 9, lest there be any confusion about his superiority or Peter's superiority over other disciples, they still didn't understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. The disciples merely went home again. Mary Magdalene is reintroduced in verses 11 through 18. The Bible says in verse 11, Mary stood outside facing the tomb crying. As she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting there, one at the head and one at the feet where Jesus' body had been lying. That may not mean much to you, but perhaps it ought to. It would have most certainly meant much to any Jew reading or hearing the message of the gospel. It would have meant much to any Jew in the first century. And for that matter, it should mean much to any Jew in any century. God's prescription for the establishment of the tabernacle in the Old Testament, he provides the dimensions and the specifics not only for the temple, but for everything that is to be included within Initially, there is a tent or a tabernacle as it's referred to in the English and then later a temple, but both would bear great resemblance one to the other. In the tabernacle or in the temple, there was at a later time an outer court that was a place for God-honoring Gentiles to be able to gather in proximity to the temple. There was a court for Jews who had purified themselves, who were ritually clean and had access to the temple and you just kind of move toward the center in these varying layers of holiness or cleanness. 
There was a cord for the gathering of the Levitical priests where they were to do their priestly functions, conduct their daily responsibilities, and in the very heart of the tabernacle or the temple was the place called the Holy of the Holies. That place reserved only for the chief of priests. That place was the place where God would meet with the chief priest who would be there representing the needs of the people, and he was to return to the people representing the interest of their God. Even within the Holy of Holies was what is known as the Ark of the Covenant, the subject of that famous Indiana Jones movie and the subject of a great deal of conjecture and endless speculation about which I have zero interest whatsoever. But that Ark of the Covenant represented the precise point within creation where God was to meet with man. The temple, the tabernacle itself, represented the intersection between heaven and earth. All that was conducted within the temple was to be an accurate reflection of things as they unfolded in heaven. It was to symbolize the inner workings of heaven's courts here on earth. It was, again, an intersection between heaven and earth. But the pivot point, the precise spot, the exact location was the Ark of the Covenant. And even in the absence of a temple, when the tabernacle was moving along with the nation of Israel, it was the Ark that most represented the presence of God in their midst. The Ark of the Covenant was a deadly, serious thing because it was fierce in holiness, given that this was the precise location of God's dwelling in the midst of the nation of Israel. That ark was something like a coffin with gold overlaying, and on the head and the foot of that ark were two angels, one at the head and one at the foot with their wings spanned wide. Within the ark was the law, the staff of Aaron, various other things, relics from the history of Israel that reminded them of the goodness of God and his nearness to them. But there at the head and the foot, perhaps the features of the covenant that stood out most and would have been burned into the memory of any faithful Israelite were the angels there at the head and the foot. Here as Mary peers into the tomb, on, on the tomb bench where the body of Jesus would have been laid, wrapped in grave clothes, she observes two angels, one at the head and one at the foot, just, just as was the case with the Ark of the Covenant. What is subtly to us, but powerfully for many then being expressed in this moment is a radical reorientation of how God would intersect with or interact with mankind. Whereas God had met with Israel at the Ark of the Covenant in times past, he would now call people of every tongue and tribe and nation to gather unto himself in the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. To understand all of this, we're reading this chronologically with this logical progression, but these events must have been coming at Mary Magdalene a hundred miles an hour. So an angel says to her in verse 13, woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've put him. She gives the same report she had given to Peter and to John earlier. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, though she did not know it was Jesus something to be said here for the resurrected body, the inability of the mortal body, the corrupted body, to observe the resurrected body in the fullness of its splendor. 
She saw him, but she didn't recognize him. She didn't know it was Jesus. In verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, sir, if you've removed him, tell me where you've put him and I will take him away. She just doesn't know who she's talking about. It's almost a comical thing to read commentators, New Testament scholars remarking on this passage, saying things like, she must have been blurry-eyed from crying. This is not a physical challenge for Mary, seeing Jesus in the dark. This is a very real spiritual limitation. This is why Jesus says, except the Spirit draw him, no man would come. Except that God give eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to discern, no man could identify Jesus as the Prince of Peace, the Son of God, our mighty fortress. So Jesus does something incredibly gracious. He just calls her name. Jesus said in verse 16, Mary. Miriam in the Hebrew or the Aramaic, Jesus said, Mary. And in an instant, she saw him for who he was, and she recognized his voice. When Jesus called Mary's name, he turned her despair into everlasting joy. Brothers and sisters, I, I believed 21 years ago now, because in a way that is indescribable, Jesus called my name. And my hope for you, my prayer for you, is that you would listen. I'm not talking about this booming voice from heaven or these things that more charismatic types have in view. I don't know what all that's about. And I'm really suspicious when someone said, God told me or said something. I think you probably ought to get that checked out. <laughs> but in a way that exceeds my comprehension, Jesus called my name. Listen for the still, small voice of the Spirit that God would call your name. This reminds us of John chapter 10, where Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. They know me, and I know them by name. It's exactly what the good shepherd does. He calls the name of his sheep, and she answers. Turning around, the Bible says in the remainder of verse, of verse 16, she said to him, Rabbani, which means teacher. It's kind of a combination of, of rabbi, which speaks to the office of teacher and the authority that Jesus would bear and a tender affection that comes from a student who's been under his tutelage for an extended period of time. Jesus says in verse 17, don't cling to me for I've not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and tell them that I'm ascending to my father and your father to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said to her. I bet she did. But ladies, I, I want you to take note here that there, there is, in my mind, an intentional emphasis on the role that women stand to play in the advancement of the kingdom. Now listen. The Bible says that the office of pastor and elder, and this is an ongoing discussion, it seems, at least in social media Christian circles, which may not be Christian circles at all, but in any event, 
this is an ongoing discussion. The Bible says that women are not permitted to hold the office of pastor, elder. We uphold that here. We believe in that. Nor are they to be in uh, teaching in a context where men are subject to their authority. It's just a reflection of the glory of God, part and parcel of what it means to be created in the image of God. And it's our desire here as a body to uphold that. I think to honor the authority of Scripture means to honor that commandment from the Scripture. Don't shoot the messenger. I don't write the news. I just report it, right? Don't you ever, listen, don't ever buy this feminist line that would suggest that you somehow take a subordinate role in the advancement of the kingdom. Let me tell you what Jesus is doing in this passage. Here we have a not so subtle indication of the reversal of the curse of the garden. In the same way that Eve serves as a means to the entrance of sin into the world. So now Mary Magdalene, this woman formerly of ill repute, serves as the first and important means of expanding the message of the resurrection of Jesus into all the world. And men, I would say to you that if you have regarded the role that women play in the advancement of the kingdom as, some, as something of less than the role that you hold, you have fooled yourself and are denying the body of Christ 50% of its mission-sending capacity in such absurd observations. Here it's Mary, representative of the reversal of the curse of the garden, in announcing now the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The Bible says she told them what he'd said to her. Now listen, we've made a handful of observations here about the way people contend to respond to the preaching of the gospel. We've witnessed Mary's initial response of confusion, Peter's hope, John's faith, and now Mary Magdalene's elation at the realization that indeed he is risen. But there will be some like Thomas who doubt, others like Peter who later rejoice at their restoration. But at some point in time, at some point in time within your earthly life, either actively or by neglect, you're going to have to reckon with the reality that Jesus is alive. And again, if Jesus is alive, your objections, your issues, your problems with Christians, with church, or even with Christ himself are a non-issue given the weight of this realization. It doesn't matter what you like or what you don't like. It doesn't matter what you appreciate or what you don't appreciate. If Jesus is alive, you're going to have to do something with that reality. And I got news for you. There's a great deal of what we say as a faith community regarding the resurrection of Jesus, which is not statements born out of faith. They are well-attested historical statements, observations made about what we know in time past. This is not an unreasonable faith. In fact, it is a well-reasoned faith. And I'll spend three hours this evening talking about resurrection and the historical reliability of these accounts of the resurrection. This is a well-reasoned faith. You're going to have to do something about that. You will ultimately do something about that, either actively or out of neglect. You yourself will find your place along the spectrum of responses to the message of the resurrection. My hope for you this morning is that with eyes of faith, you would see and believe. 
that with gladness of heart you would join Mary Magdalene in her elation at what God had done in the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And you would go and, and tell the world what Jesus has done for us. Find your place by faith in the resurrected body of Jesus, that meeting place between God and man, our refuge against the wrath of God that is to come. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth. Thank you for the message of the resurrection. Thank you, Lord, for your son's resurrection and what it means for us. Thank you, Lord, that we can live with a spirit of invincibility, that we can, with boldness and courage, declare the message of the gospel and dismiss any danger that might come our way. Because what this world could ever hope to take away, God, you'll give us back and all that more. Lord, we love you. We're glad to be loved by you. God, my most earnest prayer is that you would, in that indescribable way, whisper the names of those who are gathered here this morning. Might today be their day of salvation. In Christ's name.